All right, Psalm 129 is where we pick back up this evening in our study in the book of Psalms together, and we're in the midst of this section in the book of Psalms uh, the last few weeks uh, from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, as we mentioned, and you notice sort of shorter Psalms. These are referred to as songs, uh, Psalms or a song of ascent or ascent and ascents. And the idea, again, as we've been talking about, is that these were actually Psalms that were set in some way to music, to harmony in some way, that is, the Jewish people ascended up to Jerusalem during the time of the mandatory feasts when they would leave from the different areas and territories around the land and they would depart from their uh, homestead and make their journey up to Jerusalem and little by little they'd see each other coming over the hill and the pilgrimage groups would grow as they would make the journey. Uh, these, this was sort of their song set. Uh, that they would use, and they would take these psalms as they were ascending up to the higher elevation of Jerusalem, uh, both uh, geographically but also spiritually. You always went up to Jerusalem because that's where the presence of God was manifest and where the people would worship and seek God. And these were the songs that they would somehow set to music and they would sing together as they would travel. Uh, and so a lot of them shorter, we've been noticing. So again, Psalm 129 is another short one. So we'll, with these shorter ones, just kind of read through it, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack it. This one tells us, Psalm 129, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel, the idea is the entire nation, the people of God now say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Yet they've not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms, neither let those who pass by them say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So Psalm 129 seems to be sort of a reflection upon God's ability to preserve his chosen people against their enemies. Uh, when things would come against them, when hatred and animosity would be directed towards them and the way they would be treated or persecuted or attacked uh, as they were many times over, that God would permit that to a degree, but that God would always never allow evil to completely triumph and to succeed in the end, that God ultimately would preserve his people. God would always at a certain point say enough and he would intervene and he would come to the aid and to the rescue of his people. And it seems that this is what uh, is being celebrated here as they reflect in Psalm 129 as they would sing this. And certainly this would make a lot of sense to the nation of Israel as we know throughout generations from Egypt all the way up to modern day things of uh, you know, Nazi Germany and what happened under you know, Stalin and others. I mean, the people of God, the chosen nation of Israel, have continuously been subjected to mistreatment and hatred again and again throughout the generations, and yet God has continued to miraculously uh, not just protect his people, but even to cause them to not just survive, but even to thrive, uh, which is incredibly miraculous, the indication that God's good hand is with them. 
So the psalmist begins by saying here in verse one, many a time, not just once, but many a time, he says, they have afflicted me from my youth. So uh, the psalmist here is reflecting upon just personally that numerous times he'd been subjected to affliction. The idea there is pain, torture, mistreatment. And he says many a time, even from the days of my youth, uh, I've been subjected to harsh mistreatment, to painful things. And, you know, in some ways, perhaps you can uh, connect even with what the psalmist is saying there on a personal level. Perhaps there has been a lot of painful suffering uh, that you've experienced from your early days, maybe from the days of even your childhood or youth. There have been numerous times when you've been deeply afflicted or hurt, whether through mistreatment of uh, sadly family members, which that can come from there, or just people, uh, maybe just severe mistreatment as you were growing up or whatever. And, you know, th- those things can really register some deep wounds. I mean, certainly physical things can have their pain and bring affliction. But, uh, you know, the, the, the dumbest things we uh, ever sang were things, things like, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Uh, whoever wrote that, it's just dumb. I don't know who wrote it, but they're just, it makes no sense. I mean, when you, when you, it sounds good, I guess, in a rhyme, but it, the reality is, is, you know, many of us who have experienced any degree of personal hurt from any other individual, even one time in our life that afflicted our soul and the wounds and the scars that we carry around as fractured human beings on this earth, because as selfish, sinful creatures, we are cruel in the things that we do to one another as human beings. And any one of us, I am certain, if not many a time, would say at any a time, look, I I think I would have rather just been punched straight in the face or just hit me in the knee with a bat. But don't do what you did to me that, you know, wounded my soul or just caused such an internal, you know, traumatic effect, which many a times, you know, lingers much longer. Right, the wounds of that. You know, any of us who've ministered to people, if not ourselves, you know, realize the reality of you know somebody can have their leg broken or their nose broken, and that you know heals, recovers in a few weeks. But there are people who years, decades, who've been afflicted by painful mistreatment or hurtful things that have been done to that are still nursing those wounds. Uh, and many people around us, you know, just still living like victims, especially if they haven't experienced the healing of the Lord uh, and are just traumatized because of painful things that have happened in their lives. And here the, the psalmist seems to be reflecting upon that reality. He says, many a time they've afflicted me from my youth. It's ever since the days of my youth, I've been experiencing this. And then he then turns to a national level to the people of Israel themselves, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the Jews. And he says, let Israel now say, the idea is collectively, and then he restates the same thing. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they've not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back, they made their furrows long. So here the psalmist begins to reflect on just the national mistreatment, uh, the, the diabolical persecution that has come against God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, uh, throughout history, ever since they've been 
a nation, since God brought them together under Abraham, their father, uh, if there are any people who have ever experienced more hatred and more mistreatment uh, on a on a ethnic and a national level, it is indeed God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Now, listen, we, it's important that we understand when we talk about Israel, the Jews being God's chosen people. Uh, We're not talking about chosen in the sense that because they're chosen, they're automatically right with God spiritually or that they're automatically guaranteed salvation and entrance into heaven. Uh, Certainly God worked through the nation of Israel. God chose them nationally and they are God's chosen people. They are the apple of his eye. God has worked through them to bring about his purposes and intentions were everything that would give what's spiritual of what we all need, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, that is every other nationality as well, because it's through the Jewish nation uh, of Israel that God brought, you know, everything from the word of God uh, to the prophecies of scripture uh, to ultimately, of course, giving to us the Messiah through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish people uh, to bring salvation into the world. That's why the Bible says salvation is of the Jews, because it is. Uh, Everything that God has brought to us as Gentiles and brought into the whole world, God has brought through them as a chosen people. Uh, That does not guarantee and mean that they always do what's right. It doesn't mean every decision the nation of Israel makes is right. Uh, Are they God's chosen people nationally? Absolutely. And so because of that, should there, we be standing together with them in solidarity? Most certainly. That's why God said all the way back from Genesis 12, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. Because God has orchestrated something through them and God has a wonderful plan which still has more to be accomplished even in the, 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 the you know, time of Jacob's trouble in the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period of tribulation, God will directly begin to work with the nation of Israel once again, even as he continues to accomplish his purposes because Jerusalem is God's epicenter and is, and is God's focal point for what he does throughout the entire earth. And so for that sense, they are God's chosen people. Do they as well, however, like you and I, have to receive forgiveness and salvation, receive the righteousness of God that's imparted by trust in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Doesn't mean they get a free pass to go into heaven. In fact, you know, a good portion of the nation of Israel, even modern day Israel, is very secular. Uh, And the Bible teaches that many of the Jews are, are blinded spiritually because of their rejection of Christ. But I say all of these things to to understand when we look at the hatred and the anti-Semitism, right, and all the horrible things that have happened to them, as the psalmist says here, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, from the youth, just the earliest days of the youthful days of, of Abraham and what birthed into the nation of Israel all the way to what they are as a people now. Many a times they've been afflicted repeatedly, repeatedly, yet ultimately the crazy thing is no one has ever completely prevailed over them as a people. Now, now why is it that humanity hates the Jewish people in the nation of Israel so much? It's It's not ethnic racism. It has nothing to do with bigotry. It has nothing to do with prejudice. It has everything to do with the fact that it's diabolically inspired. Because the devil understands all that God has brought and all that God intends to do spiritually, salvation is of the Jews. So anything the devil can do to try and disrupt what the kingdom of God has been about from the first day of Abraham all the way through the history to even to this point of the nation of Israel, 
The devil, whether people of other nations and nationalities realize that's where their hatred and anti-Semitism stems from, whether they're conscious of it or not, that's what the unseen current underneath, the spiritual current, is, is causing that to happen. And, and from the days of, of Abraham and, and the earliest days of the Jewish nation, right, the Egyptians tortured them, mistreated them, tried to destroy them. And you just follow through history, you know, the, the Assyrians uh, under the Babylonians, under the time of the Persians, under the time of the Greek Empire, horrific treatment, under the time of the Roman Empire, and all the way through into things that we now understand as well. You know, modern day you know, Nazi Germany, you know, the, the Holocaust and, you know, what happened under Stalin. And, and there's just this constant diabolical mistreatment of them as a people. But again and again, though they have been so harshly treated and persecuted and afflicted, God never lets anyone ultimately completely prevail over his people because God preserves them. And God continues to not only keep them alive and let them survive as a nation, but thrive as a nation. And you have to understand, they're a sociological miracle in the sense that they went for centuries without a homeland and maintained their national identity. That's a sociological miracle. No other people group have ever been without a homeland for more than a generation and retained their national identity. The only reason why Israel did is because God is orchestrating a plan through them. And though all the hatred of hell comes against them in the way that we see it through humanity and how they're mistreated as a people group, God ultimately intervenes and never lets their enemies prevail against them. And, you know, as we read that language there, many times they've afflicted me, yet they've not prevailed. That, to me, that speaks to us as well of what we now begin to experience ourselves as the church, Right. Jesus speaks to us of how he would build his church. And he said, and the gates of hell or Hades would not what prevail against it. Jesus said in John 15 that they're going to hate you as my followers because they hated me. And if they hated me, they're going to hate you because you represent me. And so simply the fact in the same way that the Jewish people have experienced anti-Semitism and affliction and mistreatment because they're God's chosen nation, you and I as Christians because the spirit of Christ, the Messiah, the, the Lord Jesus dwells inside of us and we live for him and honor him and represent him. We are going to continuously draw, whether we want to or not, antagonism and persecution and mistreatment against our lives as Christians. It's the part they don't tell you when they share the gospel with you, right? <laughs> Nobody shares with you. Listen, can I share the gospel with you? And I want to give you a few promise verses while I'm doing that. My favorite one as a Christian is all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And, and, and Jesus said that in the world, you're going to have lots of tribulation, but take heart. He said he's overcome the world. Now, would you like to follow Jesus? Right? I mean, nobody ever shares those. You find out afterwards you were drafted into the Lord's army. Then you start reading your Bible and realizing as a Christian, like, man, this is great, the forgiveness of sins, and I'm walking with Jesus, but what, why all of a sudden? I feel like I'm in a battle now all the time. And then you, you know, start getting to the back of your New Testament, and you read Paul starting to tell Timothy you know, to, to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And when did I get drafted? Nobody told me that. And you just start to realize the reality of that. But the wonderful thing is, though attacks come against us, and though attacks will come against the church satanically and against our lives as Christians, Jesus said, but they won't prevail. Jesus didn't say they wouldn't come. 
he just said they won't prevail. So the enemy will attack and he will assault and he will do the things that he does. But the wonderful thing is Jesus said that he would not let the enemy prevail over his church in the same way he doesn't let enemies prevail ultimately against his chosen people nationally, the nation of Israel. As he describes the experiences of the mistreatment, he uses very picturesque language there in verse three. He says, the plowers plowed on my back and they made their furrows long. Again, they're an agricultural people. They understood what it was like to take a plow out and to you know, drag it through as you were you know, making a furrow in the ground to then go out and, and plant your seed. And that's the picture there of a person being face down on the ground in the dirt and somebody just dragging a sharp plow right up your back, you know, just dragging it right up your back there, the wound, the pain, the, how debilitating that would be, right? When something happens to your back, you just you're completely debilitated. Uh, I've been there, done that circus, hoping not to sign back up for it. But that's the picture there really is the plowers plowed on my back. The picturesque language is somewhat to indicate they treated me like dirt, right? The plowers plowed my back. And we say that sometimes. Man, I, I can't, I literally feel like they, they're treated me like dirt. They're treating me like I'm dirt. Well, look at that. It's very picturesque there. Maybe you can resonate with that. I really feel like that, that that's, you know, I feel like they've just been treating us as dirt or they're treating me like dirt and they're just plowing up a, you know, a sharp wound all the way up my back, just trampling over me face down and treating me like I'm nothing more than dirt. Now, in the midst of all this affliction and mistreatment and the unjust pain that they're dealing with, one would think the natural human reaction to that is, God, you're so wrong. How could you let people treat me like dirt? How could you let them do that to me? God, how could you let people hurt me or harm me? Why would, and you would think right, that would be the natural human tendency to deflect anger towards God or that it's God's fault. And why would God do such a thing? But notice the psalmist here writing under the inspiration of the spirit says the exact opposite. He says, but the Lord is righteous. Instead of deflecting the blame to God, the psalmist was mature enough spiritually to say, you know what? God is not to blame. Sinful, broken humanity is to blame because they have rebelled against God and yielded to the power of darkness that's directing their mind and directing their hearts. And and, and I am not gonna shift blame onto God and be angry at God for evil, sinful, wrong things that people are doing who aren't following God, who are living in rebellion to God. And the psalmist recognized if there's anything I need, I need God's help. And so he turns in the midst of all this and he says, but yet the Lord is righteous. Now, does that mean the psalmist understood why they were suffering? And no, it wasn't a matter of finding the answers, but what he was able to do in maturity was to disconnect the trauma and the pain and the emotional hardships that he was going through and to say, you know what, despite what people are doing wrong, God is still righteous. God himself is still good. God is still in control. And, you know, ultimately, that's a very important thing because when you get into the book of Revelation and you start seeing their eternal pictures around the throne of God, one of the things, as we've said from this pulpit many times before, that they are saying in the eternal dimension around the throne of God, of which we will one day join and enter into, is they are around the throne of God saying, righteous and true are all your ways. 
Another place, Revelation 19, says, righteous and true are all your judgments. In other words, God, everything that you even permitted, not caused, God, everything you even allowed to happen on that broken, sinful, cursed, fallen earth. Lord, everything you permitted to transpire, somehow when we shed these earthly bodies and our little finite minds and everything else, and we are in the presence of God somehow, and I don't know how, but I trust that God is righteous and it, 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 it's going to come to pass in, in a way that it will all make, we are going to somehow say, God, everything that you did, allowed to transpire, it actually it all ended up being righteous because somehow this contributed to that and the loss of that contributed to the gain of this. And, and somehow we'll see and all of that will be answered and all of the whys that we deal with on earth, why this and why that, you know, in heaven, people, are we going to get all our questions answered? I don't think it's so much we're gonna, all our questions are going to answer. I think all my questions are going to just go away. Because when you get there and you look at the throne of God and you have a glorified body and somehow now we see through a glass dimly, then we're going to see fully and clearly. And somehow we're just going to see God in something about being able to behold God when we look at him and we start to worship. It's every question that we had, it just, it's just gone. It's just answered uh, in a degree that we, can, we can't fathom it right now in our understanding. But the psalmist here, very beautiful. The Lord, you are righteous. And he says, and despite what they're doing, he says, the Lord has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. The idea is he only lets, just like a rubber band, he only lets the cord stretch so far. He only gives them so much rope. And at any moment that God wants to, he has many times through human history, whether with a person or even with nations, he can, whenever he wants to, just cut the ripcord. And God, you know, I just was reading recently through Ezekiel uh, one uh, morning when I was doing my devotions. And, and a lot of times that, you know, I, I don't need even a whole chapter to speak to me or anytime, sometimes I don't even need a whole verse. Sometimes it's just a few words. And, and I was reading through Ezekiel uh, probably like two weeks ago or so, and I, and I came to one of the chapters where God was just really pronouncing judgment against the wicked things we were doing, and, and God just said the word enough. And, man, I just like honed in on that the whole rest of the morning. I just did, man, to think that sometimes God just says enough. Enough. That is enough. And he reserves the prerogative to do that whenever he wants to. God's not weak-willed. He's not disconnected. He's not unaware. And at any point in time, God just wants to say, that, that's it. Enough. God can just cut the cords of the wicked and cut off what's happening right away. He says, verse 5, let all those who hate Zion, again, of course, referring to Jerusalem, a reference to the Zion, to the Zionist people, the Zionist movement, the nation of Israel, those who hate Zion, may they be put to shame, the psalmist says, and turn back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Now, what he's describing there is the, the grass on the housetops, again, in that uh, culture there they had flat roofs and a lot of times they would put you know dirt and thatch and you know mud up on their roofs to seal things off and of course when they would do that as they would take some of the earth sometimes you'd get little seeds from weeds and seeds from grass or stuff would blow into that and so then sometimes as the hot sun would then beat down on the flat roof sometimes little patches of grass would start to grow up 
But because there was no ability for it to get rooted or nowhere to sink down to get water because it was just dirt up on a roof and the hot, scorching Middle Eastern sun would come out, as soon as it would grow up, it would just scorch and go away very quickly. The idea is it had no lasting root system. It was not permanent. It was something that as soon as it may have blossomed and flourished real quick, but it also had no root system, so it died up very quickly. And this is the idea. He says, Lord, those who are doing evil... They may have a a quick time to flourish. They may seem they're flourishing, but may they wither before anything of real momentum gets happening. Lord, we just pray that they would, their root system would just dry up very quickly and that you would just put an end to it before anything can be reaped or gathered of benefit. And he's just asking for God to deal with them quicker uh, rather than later. And then he concludes the psalm saying, neither let those who pass by them. Now, this is passing by those who are doing evil against God's people. Neither let any pass by and say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, what he's doing there is he's taking a phrase. If you remember from all the way back in the book of Ruth, I know it's been quite some time since we were back there that. When Boaz, remember, would go out to the reapers in his field as he was watching his workers, one of the things that they would say, and they say it in in the fields and in work, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. It was just sort of a greeting as you're out there working and laboring, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. The blessing idea is may the Lord bless what you're doing. And here the psalmist says it doesn't matter what anyone's perspective is. He says the last thing we should ever do in any way is give any indication that those who are doing evil or those who are doing wrong, that not only that, that they would you know, be blessed in doing it, but even that we're okay with them doing it. Instead, the idea is that rather than show any approval, we should be showing disapproval. And he says, when you walk by, none of this, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Well, we're, we're God's people. We should be nice. And I'm not saying as God's people, we shouldn't be nice, but we're also not called to be foolish. And the Bible also tells us we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. You know, Jesus said that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's a strong word. Hatred is a strong word. You know, the book of Romans tells us that God is displeased. He says in chapter you know, one and two, they're not only with people who are doing that, which is wrong, but even those who will prove such things. And so we want to be very careful. You know, we don't want to ever, well, just, you know, God bless you, brother. I don't want anything to do with you, but God bless you. But no, I, I how about under our breath? God curse you, brother. I just, I don't want anything to do with you. God, you know, I, I don't want to ask God to bless someone when they're doing something horrible and evil and wicked. I, I want God to deal with that in the same way that, you know, he would want to deal with that if it's hurting and destroying people that God loves and things that God wants to do. So it's interesting that here he kind of cautions. He says, don't let anyone who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. That, that's not what God would want. God would want his people to stand in disapproval because of the hatred that was being expressed toward the people of Israel and the mistreatment to them. Psalm 130 uh, declares, we'll read through it, out of the depths I've cried to you, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his 
iniquities. So here in this psalm, it seems that the you know, writer, the psalmist, is reflecting upon a time when he was in a, a dark place, a, a very deep situation in the depths, the depths of despair, or the you know, kind of in the pit in some way, and just a really dark and difficult place for whatever reason, and wrestling through that and, and, and having to, in a sense, be broken in regards to his own condition and realizing that the only opportunity that was going to bring about any rescue, any deliverance, was just waiting upon the Lord and hoping that God would intervene to rescue. He, he begins by expressing what's going on in verse 1 and 2 by just saying, Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. So with great passion. Again, this is what we've loved about the study in the, in the book of Psalms. I just was, in fact, speaking to uh, someone at a conference this week that I was at who just went through an extremely painful, difficult time. And, you know, we were talking for a little bit and, and just dialoguing about the very reality of how there is something about the book of Psalms that we resonate with because of the range of emotions, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of coming to the tail end of the book of Psalms now, but how literally, even that time when you are in the depths of despair or in a dark time or in a real, you know, just trial or maybe going through something very hard and you find yourself in a deep, dark place, how all of a sudden you're just the range of emotion and passion. And I mean, we've seen all these different ranges of emotion in the book of Psalms. And yet, nonetheless, we continuously see how the psalmists and those who write these psalms, they process those things by just venting those things with God and worshiping their way through the difficulties and praying their way through the pain and all the hardships and the problems and in a very passionate way, right? And many times at the beginning of the psalm, they're in the depths of despair and they're in a horrible place. And just as they begin to cry out to the Lord and express just being real with God and just very raw, which I think is important because we're not fooling God anyway, right? And here the psalmist, he says, Lord, I was in the depths. I was in a really dark place. And he says, Lord, in the midst of that, I cried out to you. And I was saying, please, Lord, I need you to hear my voice right now. Because, Lord, there's nobody else that in my life even wants to listen right now. Or nobody else could even understand what I'm going through right now. And at times in our life, we, we find ourselves in that place, right? There are different occasions where there may even be, uh, and we're thankful for that, some degree of similarity. And we appreciate that fellowship of the sufferings when maybe somebody's going through something somewhat similar. But we all know there's little details and unique things to what we go through in our given situations where in those moments we realize that, that the voice of another person, what they have to say or what they went through, or us trying to tell them it's not exactly the same, maybe what we're going through or even how it's affecting us or the way that we're promising it, uh, you know, uh, you know, processing it. And it's in those times where, like the psalmist here, we're saying, Lord, if you're not attentive to my voice, Lord, if you don't hear me and answer me, I'm going to be buried in this pit. I'm never going to get out of this deep, dark place in the depths where I'm at. But how wonderful that when we're in the deepest, darkest pit, like Jeremiah, you know, they, they lowered him down into the pit. And as he's lowered down into the pit, it's in the midst of that that Jeremiah starts, you know, calling out to the Lord. And the Lord begins inviting, inviting him in the pit, saying, Jeremiah, you know, call to me. 
and I'll show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Ask me. In the pit. I mean, he's in a miserable place. But the truth of the matter is, if we were to just be genuine and honest, isn't it not true that in some of the darkest places when we're in the depths of difficulty or despair or hardship, that those are some of the times that in the dark, the light of the Lord shows us things that we would have never seen. But doesn't that make sense because of the contrast, right? If I were to take a flashlight in a room that's already lit up like this, the the contrast, because it's already pretty bright, it wouldn't be quite as obvious. But if you killed all the lights in here, and then you put even just the tiniest flashlight, right? And then all of a sudden the contrast is that it, it, you can see a whole lot more. And the Bible says that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so sometimes when we're crying out in prayer, Lord, please, you've got to hear my voice. That's when, man, he, he lights something up and he shows us something. And he, we know that he's listening to us in those times. You know, and it isn't interesting as the psalmist is in this really dark, difficult place in the depths, in some pit in his own life personally. It's in the midst of that, that verse three and four, he begins to kind of, you know, talk through this reality of if you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Now, I don't know. Is he saying that because perhaps he's human just like you and I and in the dark place, the devil's saying, yeah, you know why you're in this pit, don't you? It's because you did this and God's still mad at you. It's because God's got a record of what you did six months ago or a year ago or that thing you did, that really dark thing that you did a long time ago and God's still tracking and he's not done. He's, he's, he's just working you over because of that sinful thing that you did and our brain starts going there and we start beating ourselves up in condemnation and we think, oh, this is because I'm sinful and I'm broken and God's punishing me and, and we begin to get in this whole thing where we just you know, make ourselves many times mentally and emotionally and spiritually just sink even deeper. And the psalmist says here, as he's processing this, and I don't know if that's what he was, but he says, Lord, I, you know, the truth of the matter is if you should mark our iniquities, and the word mark there literally means to keep an account for the sake of payback. And he says, Lord, if you were to keep an accurate account of all of our iniquities, who could stand before you? Nobody could. The idea, we all fall short from our first breath, right? From our first breath, we, we are just beginning to live out a journey to prove what God says about us, that we're spiritually dead and we're sinful by nature. And we just prove that as we live out our lives. So he says, you know, this isn't a reality of that God is paying us back or punishing us because of our iniquity. He says, Lord, nobody could stand before you. If you were going to hold us all to account for our sinfulness, who, who could ever stand in your presence as righteous? Well, we, we all know that we fail and miss the standard and fall short and we become conscious of our own sinfulness. And a lot of times when we're in the hard places, we're being broken and humbled. That's where we become more conscious of our own sinfulness because we're just facing the realities of ourself in those places. But the psalmist encouraged himself, but he said, but Lord, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And I like that the psalmist says this, Lord, thank goodness that though if you marked our iniquities, nobody could stand, Lord, thank goodness you are a forgiving God and that with you there's forgiveness and that we can know that forgiveness and experience that forgiveness. You know, the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you know, the Bible tells us that God is a God. I love that phrase where it says in, it moves in Nehemiah 9 where he says that he's a God who's ready to pardon. And I like that. It doesn't say he will pardon. 
says he's ready to pardon. The idea is he's just, he's waiting to forgive. God delights forgiving. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he says, I'm ready to pardon. He's always wanting to forgive. He's always wanting to extend forgiveness. And he doesn't extend forgiveness to us just because he wants to be nice and he's willing to overlook things. Blood has to be shed. An innocent substitute has to die in our place. And of course, ultimately for you and I, we understand that God finished that work of giving forgiveness to us and assurance of forgiveness to us because of what Jesus did. That he is the God who forgives so much that he actually, God became our savior, right? That's what the Bible tells us. That that our God actually became our savior. Jesus Christ is God, our savior. God who we sinned against became the savior, died in our place, gave up his life, took the punishment we deserve so that he could offer to you and I forgiveness and cleansing so that we don't have to worry, Lord, are you marking my iniquities? Is that what this is? Is this payback? for? And, and, no, no, Lord, you're a God who forgives. And it should make us fear God all the more. It should make us reverence him and be thankful to him all the more that he is a God who's so forgiving and gracious despite all of our brokenness and our sinfulness. He therefore says, Lord, it gives me confidence. Verse five, I will wait for the Lord My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. He comes back again. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning and those who watch for the morning. So he uses this repetitious language to drive home this idea of just waiting upon the Lord to rescue him, to get him out of this situation that he's dealing with here. You know, verse five and six, there's a song. It's an older song. We haven't sang that in I can't remember saying that for probably 20 years. You know, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I do trust. And, and, and here the psalmist speaks about waiting for the Lord. The idea is because, Lord, I'm in the depths, I'm in a pit. And when you're in the depths and you're in a pit, here's the one thing you're not doing. You're not climbing out of it, right? I, I've never climbed out of one pit. I've been rescued out of the pit many, many times out of the depths of discouragement or feeling depressed or feeling down or, you know, all the different reasons we can get ourselves into the depths. But it's always the Lord, right? It's always the Lord who descends, just like he descended from heaven down into the pit in the depths of this earth. And he condescended and became a man and rescued us. He's continually doing that for us. And it's as as we're waiting on him, Lord, I'm waiting on you. You've got to intervene in this situation, Lord. My soul is waiting for you. And he says, my soul is waiting for you more than those who watch for the morning. The idea there is the, the person who was the watchman on the wall. And as they were waiting for the morning, they weren't waiting for the morning with the sense of like, I hope morning comes. They were watching for the morning knowing that I don't know when it's coming because they didn't have watches or iPhones. or So they knew morning was coming. It was a guarantee it was coming. They just didn't know when it was coming. But it was a sense of anticipation and expectancy. Morning will come because it's coming every single day and it's going to happen again. So they were watching with a sense of expectancy. It will happen. I just don't know when. So they just kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And he says, as, even as they wait for the dawning of a new day, because the dawning of a do, new day brought what? Change. And this is the idea here. The psalmist is saying, yes, I've been in the depths, but I'm waiting for the Lord because I believe change is coming. I, I, I believe a new day is coming. I believe that, I don't know when, but I'm waiting and hoping in his word because when God gives his word, that's reliable. 
The word of man may not be reliable, but the word of God is. So he's saying, I am waiting on the Lord because I believe he's going to bring a new day. A change is about to happen. Just like those who watch for the morning, I believe change is coming. And he says, therefore, to encourage others in that same spirit, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is mercy. That is, God has compassion and mercy upon human weakness and frailty. And with him, he says, is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel, notice, from all his iniquities. So again, redemption is that purchase price that's paid to reclaim something. And he says, God is not only a God who forgives, he's a God of abundant redemption. He will pay whatever it costs to redeem his people back into right relationship with him. And again, just a wonderful reminder in the same way we understand that spiritually in the sense of redemption and salvation that comes through Christ, just to realize that, again, God was was willing to spare no expense, right, to, to bring you and I into a relationship with him. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, God, who did not spare, Romans 8, he says, he didn't spare his own son, how much more shall we not with him also freely give us all things? The idea there is God, God put his best up front. And he says, if God wasn't reluctant or God wasn't hesitant and he didn't spare his absolute best, he paid the highest price just to get us into a relationship with him. How shall he not in that same attitude of love and kindness and grace freely give us all things? The idea is to encourage us. Lord, if you're willing to not spare Jesus to redeem me, then, Lord, I, I, I believe I can trust you for anything then, that, that you're willing to do whatever is necessary to help me. Let's look quickly, Psalm 131, just a short one, three verses. That way you don't have an anxiety attack how long you're going to be here. It won't take long, but good, good stuff in here. He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, he then says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and evermore. Now, note with me if you would right there in verse 2, the, the beginning of verse 2, where he says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. I've calmed and quieted my soul. The picture there, a calm and a quiet soul. The idea is being at rest within, being peaceful inside, being able to be calm and content rather than all the other things that we can be as human beings, right? Agitated, restless, angry, discontent, frustrated. I mean, all the other stuff that we always find ourselves wrestling. And here he says, I found out how to experience a calm and a quiet soul within to just have peace. And boy, if we were really to, is that not honestly as human beings, probably the most valuable possession any person can have to actually have just peace of mind, to have some calmness, some quietness within and to just be able to enjoy that. And the psalmist here seems to indicate some of where that experience comes from. In verse 1, 2, and 3, I think he mentions three things that contribute to that very thing. In verse 1, he speaks about humility. In verse 2, he speaks about, I believe, maturity. And in the third verse, he just speaks about dependency. And those three things, I believe, contribute to having a calm and a quiet soul. 
humility and maturity and dependency. When those things are happening spiritually, that's what brings our soul into that peaceful, content, and calm and quiet condition. In verse 1, he speaks about the importance of humility. He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty. In other words, Lord, my heart is not arrogant. I've not let pride take over control of my heart. And that's a challenge for all of us. Again, this is a Psalm of David. You notice that at the beginning of the writing, there's a Psalm of David. And if anybody had a a tendency or or anyone, I I shouldn't say tendency, if anyone had a reason, let's say that, to maybe actually want to get a little proud and let what we call the Bible talks about our struggle of the pride of life take over control, David would be a really good candidate from that. Because you remember, David was just a shepherd boy out in the field. Remember, teenager, they come to the house of Jesse, and Samuel says, you know, uh, I believe I'm supposed to anoint the next king of Israel. And so can you bring your sons to this feast? And so one son passes by. That must be him. Man, he's the oldest. He's got the most experience. Um, he's, he certainly seems the most talented in the family. And, and God says, that's not him. And so one by one, remember all of you know, Jesse's sons are passing by and every time, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. Eventually, Samuel has to ask Jesse, do you have any other sons? None of these are the ones God's chosen. David seemed to be so overlooked, which should be a good encouragement if you spent your whole life being overlooked. David seemed to be so overlooked, his own dad forgot he had one more son. He was out in the field. Interesting, they're on a party. David's the one out in the field taking care of the sheep, though. David's the one working under the radar, you know, worshiping God. He's the one that loves the Lord, and he's out taking care of the sheep because God's cultivating and preparing him. He's the runt of the family, right? God's just, God's do, and, and he's just completely overlooked. And ultimately, he comes in, God anoints him. He's the next king of Israel. Uh, and, and he goes from being a shepherd boy, and God takes him through quite a process But eventually, he becomes the greatest king in Israel. From being an absolute nobody to really being in God's estimation, the Bible holds him up as the greatest king in the nation of Israel. And yet David says here, but yet, Lord, I know where I came from. David, you read some and say, I remember. He says, not only did I used to lead the sheep, sometimes I was following the sheep. I mean, (laughs) David knew where he came from. And he never let any of the experiences of what God did in his life, thankfully, by the grace of God, go to his head. He never became haughty in his heart and proud and arrogant and looked down upon others and became you know, condescending in attitude or wanted to be treated as important or perceived as important. or Just that, that never became something that ultimately began to become the real downfall of David. And David made his fair share of mistakes. But here he says, Lord... You know, one of the things I know that contributes to having a calm, quiet spirit is is I have to maintain an attitude of humility. Because the reality is, is the opposite of humility, which is haughtiness or arrogance or loftiness, things that he refers to here concerning yourself with great matters and so on. When when you're proud or when I let pride take over my heart, you're never going to be calm and quiet and peaceful within because you're always striving to keep that image. I'm somebody special. And you got to keep working to be special. And you got to keep striving to be important. And you got to keep working and striving because, because you got an image to keep up. You're a rock star, right? I mean, and you got to keep working. And you can, how do you ever rest? Because you're always having to, in pride, maintain an image of being somebody special, important, great. And, and, and so it's exhausting to live that way. 
as compared to just the, the humility of, I know who I am. <laughs> I, I, I remember where I came from. And even if God took you to here, or God takes you to here, or God one day brings you all the way over there, all the way up there. If you just right, remember where you come from, kind of just you're not impressed with yourself and you don't allow pride to take over your heart, humility really allows you to keep peace of mind and a calmness and a quietness within because you're not striving. He says here, my heart's not haughty. My eyes aren't lofty. The idea is I'm not, I'm not looking for great things. David speaking about here how he wasn't somebody who, who was trying to let selfish ambition take over. David wasn't striving for the throne, right? Two different times, David's own men said, said look, God, like a softball right over the plate, kill Saul right there. You know God wants you to be king. Just kill the guy. Let's get the show on the road. And David wouldn't do it. He wasn't, he wasn't into selfish ambition. He was letting God do what God was doing in God's way. And he was never trying to promote himself. He wasn't trying to push himself forward. He wasn't trying to make something happen. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm not somebody who's letting selfish ambition, put my eyes on lofty things, always looking to right, climb the ladder. I mean, that's the way the world does stuff. Something's wrong with you out in the world if you're not always trying to climb the ladder, right? You got to always have your eye on the next higher thing, the promotion, the higher thing. That, and, but, but in the kingdom of God, it's not supposed to be that way. And David says, my heart's not haughty. My eyes aren't lofty. I'm not looking for great things for myself. He says, neither do I concern myself with great matters or with things too profound for me. In essence, David's saying there, I, I, I don't try and figure everything out. I, I, there are some really complicated, great matters that God knows that I don't understand. David's in essence saying in his humility, there is another expression of, he says, I don't have all the answers. I don't understand all the things that there are to be understood. And there are certain things that I just don't know. And I'm never going to know. And he was humble enough to acknowledge that, that he didn't have to be, you know, the, the, the sh- sharpest, you know, knife in the box or the smartest. He said, there are certain things, some matters, some things that are profound. And David's I'm, I just, I'm not a profound person. I'm just a shepherd. <laughs> That's just all I know how to do. And, and he was okay with just being comfortable with who he was. And not having to feel the need to, you know, be overly smart or know the answer to everything or give the answer to everything. You know, this made me think of when I was reading over it, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, where it says this, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. But do you notice there, there are certain things that belong to the Lord and then things that are revealed to us, indicating we don't know everything. Not everything's revealed to us. And so sometimes we have to be careful, even in our hunger or desire, or, you know, drive to want to know more and to understand more. And that's good. And there's nothing wrong with godly ambition or, you know, in a healthy way or desiring to understand things. But we also want to be careful, too, that, that we're not, you know, trying to get too attached to trying to be overly profound and we know everything and we have the knowledge about everything and we have insights and we're seeing new things and novel things. And I don't know about you. I have a hard enough time just obeying this on a daily basis. You know, I don't know about you people read this book, read that book. I, I don't know how many times a year somebody read this book. I'm still trying to read my Bible, bro. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a good book. But I don't need the five power principles to how to be a profound prophetic whatever. I can't even do alliteration. Christian, I'm just trying to walk with Jesus. 
and, and just keeping it simple, man. <laughs> and, and that keeps me busy enough. And I love just the humility of David here. This is what gives a person a calm, contented, quiet, peaceful spirit, just knowing who you are, being comfortable with that. He also mentions in verse two, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, the contrast there of a weaned child is the contrast to a nursing child, right? A a weaned child is a child that was once being nursed by their mother, and now they've been weaned off of that. And so this is the contrast, like a weaned child. And, And if we think of that when he's saying that he's now like a weaned child, the idea is a child that's progressed, a weaned child has progressed. They've, they've taken it to the next step. They've taken it to the next stage. They're no longer dependent, nursing upon their mother. And when you think of the contrast between a nursing child and a weaned child, a nursing child is what? Fussy, demanding, right? My, I watch my wife nurse all three children. And, and, and they're, they're very, they're a little self-centered when they're nursing. They don't care if it's two in the morning. The world revolves around them. And if they need it and they want it, they're needy. And so a nursing child is a picture of a, of a stage of immaturity, needy, fussy, never content, always needing more, whenever, demanding, pushy. That, that's the picture there, that those indications of immaturity. Where the weaned child has been weaned off of nursing, and so the weaned child has now come to a place where that child has learned to be content. They've learned to be a little bit more independent. They're not as demanding. They're not as fussy. They learn how to wait for food to be prepared for them. And so the idea there is a picture of progression, that there's a degree of maturity that's come, that they're no longer behaving in a way that's like the nursing child, fussy and demanding and never content. They're the exact opposite. They've progressed past some of those things. And that's a picture there of maturity. And that's a picture, of course, of spiritual maturity, like a winged child. And that's what God wants. And honestly, for us to begin to experience some of the peace of God in a calm, quiet spirit within our soul, part of that is not just humility. Another part of that is maturity. Maturity. You know, it's a sad thing when Christians sometimes have been walking with Jesus for a good amount of time chronologically. In the same way we have different age groups in the children's ministry, it's a sad thing when you have Christians sometimes who are two, three, five, ten years old in the Lord and they still belong in the spiritual nursery because they're still fussy and demanding and immature in their behaviors and the way they conduct themselves. And God's saying, you're never going to be at peace until you start maturing a little bit. And you progress and develop. And that's what God wants for us, to progress and to develop. And it's one of the things that brings that peace and quiet into our soul as we start to mature spiritually and develop and progress like a weaned child. He says, my soul has become within me. And then verse 3, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Notice, not just at the moment, from this time forth and forevermore. And the idea there is that our confidence, our reliance, our dependability is in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And one of the things that will give to us a calm and quiet spirit within our soul is living a life where we are constantly hoping in the Lord, waiting upon the Lord and hoping in the Lord. The idea is that we don't have hope in a government, no matter how great any nation is. We don't have hope in the next election. And we don't live like that's what we think. We don't have hope in 
this or hope in that person or hope in someone else or even hope in ourselves, because that can even make us a little bit agitated. <laughs> but our hope is in the Lord, that he is our one that's going to sustain us. He's the one that's going to take care of us. And he is the one ultimately that no matter what happens or what unfolds in the world, in our life, that we know that we can wait on the Lord and trust in his word and that we're just hoping in him. And boy, isn't it a gift as a Christian to be able to have the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior that he's just going to come back and ultimately just get us out of here anyway? Uh, Keeps our soul calm and quiet. Let's stand together.